It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to this episode of Kennedy Saves the World. Today I'm going to talk to someone who actually left the world repeatedly, but he came back. He didn't have those garden variety dreams of becoming an astronaut. He actually realized those those dreams after a number of hurdles. And uh, his latest book, uh, Moonshot, a NASA astronaut's guide to achieving the impossible, is a phenomenal holiday read. Uh, not only can you hear the voice of this astronaut who reached for the heavens, but also uh, what I like almost most about the book, in addition to the details and the stories and uh, the hope and the tragedy, is there there are summations of each chapter with bullet points. So you can really get the most out of this book and seal it in, uh, that juicy goodness after every single chapter. Mike Massimino, welcome to Kennedy Saves the World. Kennedy, thanks so much for having me, and that's a wonderful introduction. I appreciate it. Thanks. So I, my daughter's middle name is Valentina, after Valentina Tereshkova, because I wow. wanted her to be able to look up into the heavens and mm-hmm. know that anything was possible. So yeah. when did you first look up into the sky? When was it that you realized that you wanted to be an astronaut and almost impossible feat to realize yeah i i I was uh six years old uh when neil armstrong walked on the moon i'm old enough to remember that very well and that's when i i looked up into the sky and particularly to the moon when those guys were on there and uh said i would love to go there someday and it made me want to grow up uh to be not only an astronaut and fly in space but i want to grow up to be neil armstrong he was he was my hero but as you say it was as uh, as I found out more about it and about myself, uh, you know, I was a kind of a skinny, scrawny kid, and from a working class neighborhood, never thought it could be possible. Uh, my eyesight went went bad on me at an early age, and I was I'm afraid of heights. I didn't like heights from an early age. Still don't like them, so I never thought it could happen. So I thought it was almost it would be impossible. But as I talk about in the book, one out of a million is impossible. There's always a chance if you try and. And I tried and hung in there and, and it and it happened. For yeah, me. I love that. You say one out of a million is not zero. And that's what people have to remember. You know, sometimes that little flicker of light is the only thing that keeps you going. So you went to Columbia, you went mm-hmm. to MIT and got several advanced advanced degrees, including mm-hmm. a PhD in mechanical engineering. You know, you you were mm-hmm well into the throes of professorship, did you sort of craft your academic career around the idea of becoming an astronaut or was it just sort of this fever dream that came and went? Well, uh, Kenny, I, I uh, didn't really, I really did give up on the, I thought it was impossible to become an astronaut when I was a little, after I was about eight years old, I was like, there's no way that this could happen. So I kind of crossed it off the list and of possibilities. And even the space program seemed far-fetched to me uh, growing up. So I didn't really think about it again uh, until I was a senior in college. So I, my, my academic career, I enjoyed math and science as a young kid and going through co- uh, high school and, and elementary school and then high school. 
And so I wanted to become an engineer and, um, as you said, went to Columbia, but didn't, wasn't thinking that I would go to the space program, just was taking courses I liked. And when I was a senior in, in college, the movie, The Right Stuff came out. And it's about the original seven astronauts and the test pilots before them. It's based on Tom Wolfe's book. I saw that movie. I read the book. It brought back all my boyhood dreams. They were still there. My interests were still there. I just thought it was impossible. And then I started thinking, well, maybe it is impossible, but maybe I should at least try and see what I can do. So that's when I decided to, uh, I worked for a couple of years at IBM in this, in New York city. And then I went to grad school. When I went to grad school though, Kennedy, that's when I had the, not, not, not necessarily the, the, I really always thought the astronaut thing was far-fetched, but I, I wanted to give my be- myself the best chance to be a good candidate for that, but also to work in the space program. So in grad school is when I started doing research and taking classes and, working summers for NASA, doing things like that, which I thought were the right steps for me to try to get closer to this dream I had. Yeah. And every time you get, you know, a master's degree, you know, you're a bachelor in science, like every time you get closer and closer and, you know, then you finally you get the letter and you're like, NASA says, yeah, you're really impressive. Come to Florida. Let's run. Let's interview you. And, yeah. and see if you're sane enough to hold up and then run you through a battery of tests, which obviously you were in phenomenal shape and very, very healthy because you passed everything. And as you say in the book, like they're looking for reasons to fail you at every turn, every conceivable test. And then you were medically disqualified. I mean, that had to be heartbreaking. You know, that that happens early on in the book. And and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, no, does he make it? <laughs> Yeah, well, it was it was heartbreaking, and um, as as you mentioned, I had been rejected outright a couple of times, but the, uh, just by getting a letter. But I, they interview they asked me to come down to the Johnson Space Center in Houston for the interview uh, after my third try. So my first two times, I just got a letter in the mail telling me no, and then now I got close. I was a finalist, and the first time I was like, oh, I need more education, so I finished up my degree at MIT. The second time I was I was. Um, uh, rejected. I thought, well, I need some real work experience. So I've been working at the space center for a while. And then the, the third time I, I, when I got the interview and rejected, it was, as you said, medically disqualified, unfit for duty. And that's game over. They won't even look at your application again. And but somehow point, you got them to yeah. like, like, like that's yeah. one of the most mm-hmm. crucial parts of that chapter is a lot of people hear that and like, well, that's it. You know, it's like it was yeah. never meant to be. And they would just turn and walk away and go, well, at least I tried. But you kept finding workarounds. Yeah. And it wasn't it wasn't easy. There was some medical issues that people would, you know, would discover during the the um, during the medical exam. So they check, check out from head to toe that were correctable. There were things like you could do or have this done or whatever. But for eyesight, they're like, no, your eyes are your eyes. These are our standards you've done. Now, just for anyone listening who's interested in the astronaut program at this point, all those things have changed. This is all outdated information as far as the the eye. It wouldn't be a problem for me now. But back then, I had to see pretty close to 2020 without glasses or, or contacts. And they did not accept any medical procedure to correct it at that at that point. But I bet they so do like, now. No, I done. bet. I mean, maybe not LASIK, but I bet you can do PRK. No, they do now. No, LASIK, I think, is – and if people are seriously looking at this, they should look at the regulations. But – uh, I don't even think there's a vision requirement. I think as long as you're correctable to 2020. Also, LASIK is is accepted. As, I think you have to be stable for six months or a year. So they've rewritten all these rules. But back then, it was the number one disqualifier uh, for even for test pilots who had really good vision. That was the number one disqualifier. I don't know of anyone that ever overturned it without the without the rules changing. 
but I figured there had to be a way. And, yeah, and, and you did. I, you yeah, did. I, yeah. Was it the exercises? Yeah. Like you would cover yeah. one eye and, and do close up and far away? And a, you said it was really tedious. It was tedious stuff. And what it was, it was a, uh, it was, it was, it's called vision training. And it was trying to help, mainly help young kids. I went to see the optometrist and she's like, I never worked with anyone who was younger than 10. And I told her I could be really immature. She wouldn't know the difference. And I begged her and she agreed to work with me. But it really was, Kenny, it was like a weird thing because it was like trying to strengthen your eye muscles, but at the same time, teaching your eyes to relax, trying to teach your brain. It was like almost teaching your brain as well. So getting your your glass, your eyes less reliant on, on corrective lenses uh, and also teaching your brain to focus, to use your eyes to focus beyond what, what it's looking at, which is kind of strange. So... You know, if something's at five, at one foot away, we can focus, and then we switch our focus when it goes two feet away. But what you're trying to do is focus beyond that. Once you get to the limits, try to get your eyes and your brain to look beyond what you're looking at. Sounds strange, but there's ways to do that so that those the, that that distance then can come into view, and you can actually approve your acuity on an eye test. And the the doctors were okay with that because it wasn't a real medical procedure. They didn't really think it was going to work, but they said, "Go ahead, give it a try." And I was able to improve my 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 visual acuity and get that decision overturned just so i could try again it didn't mean they were even going to interview me again but at least i wasn't disqualified any longer and i could try no and, and then the before you got into the program i mean there's several mm -hmm. steps where it, it all could have gone horribly wrong so yep. you, you have to take two vision tests after that you pass both of them yeah. and then yep. you find out that you have to pass a swim test and there yeah, are all these, no, yeah. there are all these frogs. There are all these like yeah, yeah. Navy fighter pilots. And I imagine yeah. like it's, it's gotta be sort of a, a bifurcated acceptance process for NASA. Like, you know, they have academics and math and science people who yeah. are strong and healthy like yourself. And then they have military people on, on yeah. that track. So, you yeah. know, you go and, and you learn what is required of you for the swim test which is pretty crazy you have to learn three survival strokes tread water tread water with your hands above the surface of the water like none yep. of that is easy stuff so they 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 separate you they go okay who are the super strong swimmers mm -hmm. and all the the seals and the navy guys like they raise their hands and they're like okay who are the not so strong swimmers and it's you and a couple <laughs> other people and your yep. instructor's like, all right, you're all getting together this week and you're having an orgy in the pool. The good people are going to teach the not so good people how to pass this test. Because if one of you doesn't pass, none of you pass. And when I read that in your book, I teared up. I, uh, yeah, it was very, uh, uh, very uh, meaningful to me as well. Uh, when I heard that, I was like, holy crap, we, I'm in a different world now because it didn't matter. You could be Michael Phelps and set a world record, but if you left someone behind, you also failed. And it was a it was a two way street on that one. If you if you could give help, your job was to give it to other people. You shouldn't leave anyone behind. And the other side of it was Kennedy, which is sometimes I think harder for us to admit, or for me anyway, is that when you need help, to ask for it because you're going to hold back the team. If I would if I would not have gotten that help, I, I may would have passed the test without getting that extra help from my friends. But it certainly made it a lot more fun and a lot easier, and it built a lot of camaraderie. And I went in there with a lot more confidence to take that exam. And we all showed up and took that swim test together, the whole group of us, and every one of us passed. And the lesson was, again, give help when you when you can, but also not to hold back the team. When you need help, if you're injured, if you're struggling with something, if you have something going on at home, 
you need to speak up and let your buddies know and uh and they should be able to help you they they'll 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 step up just like you would step up for them so yeah and, that was and the other side of that you found out the hard way i want to get into that story in just a little mm-hmm. bit All right, we got more of this interview after this. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. I want to get into your head, you know, talking about your, your first space shuttle flight where you were going to do a spacewalk. And that was the mm-hmm. Columbia in 2002, six months after 9-11. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people can identify with what you went through. And, you know, I want you to explain it, but it reminded me, so I've been doing triathlon for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like almost 30 years. And still every time when, you know, and it's like, I swim three days a week, but still mm-hmm. when I, when I ocean swim, I do all that stuff. Every time, every race, I get this feeling like, oh, man, I wish they would just cancel the swim right now. Like, I I wish there were (laughs) sharks or the water was boiling or or there was some exotic parasite. Lightning. We we can't go near the water. Yeah. Every single time. And, you know, you you talk about something that that really resonated with me. You know, it's like you you have to trust your training. But explain to me the, the feelings and the anxiety you had at three in the morning as you're walking up to Columbia. Yeah, I was, there was, again, my first flight, it was the middle of the night, and uh, we got out there, and the place is deserted, because now they put fuel in the external fuel tank, and so you have a bomb sitting there, so they clear the air, not very many people around, and it's brightly lit up in the night sky, the, the space shuttles, all the support structure is away from it, so it looks like a real spaceship now, and uh, there was smoke coming off of it, it was just water vapor, but it looked like it was smoking, it was making these really hideous noises, I think it was a cryogenic fuel going through the pumps, and bending the metal of the launch pad. It seemed like it was just like screaming. And uh, it looked and sounded like an angry beast. And after all these years of dreaming of going to space, I thought to myself, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. <laughs> but it was no way no way to turn to, to get out of it at that point. You, I had to move forward. And a couple things I learned there. One was that thinking about it is worse than doing stuff. You know, thinking about things that you're worried about is worse than doing it. Once you get in the moment, it's okay. But to, to take that step forward, for me, what was helpful was to trust my gear. You know, I had to trust everything, all the emergency procedures, all the equipment we had that was going to work and be there for me if needed. Uh, trust my training, which is what you mentioned. You know, your name wasn't picked out of a hat. You got to where you are in that moment for a reason, and you deserve to be there. Where do you believe it or not? You would They would not let you get on that spaceship, do that triathlon, uh, get into that boardroom for the presentation, whatever that that next pitch you're doing to a potential customer or whatever it might be, you wouldn't be there unless you deserve to be there. And you might not want to think that, or you might not believe that, but that's the truth. And you have to trust your training and trust your team. The life is an open book test pretty much. And uh, if you need help, your team will be there for you. And then finally, when I think of those three things together, that allowed me to also trust myself, which is the most important thing. You're ready to do this. Trust Trust your gear, trust your training, trust your team, and trust yourself. Yeah, but you also learned a very important lesson when the the tether got caught between, you know, you're doing a spacewalk, Mm -hmm. and you've got a a tether that attaches to your spacesuit, 
and yeah. the ship or the robot arm. And so you're out there walking around and you know, you're mm-hmm. you're trying to be so efficient. You're you're mm-hmm. rookie, you're going so fast, you want to prove mm-hmm. yourself and do everything right yeah. and do it faster and better than everyone else, but you didn't realize that the tether was between your legs. Right. And then yeah, what happened? Yeah, that happened to me in training, luckily. So I learned my lesson. That's why you train, because you learn your lessons. You you fail down on the ground so you don't fail up in the air. And, uh, yeah, so what happened to me is that happened when I was, as you said, I was a rookie. I was trying to show off. And all of a sudden, this happened. Like, oh, man, my tether's between my legs, which is not something you're supposed to allow to happen, of course. So I felt badly about that. And I was like, okay, uh, maybe no one will notice. And so I tried to fix it on my own by, like, going on my side and clicking my legs. And by doing that, I then engaged the tether with my helmet and then I turned and it was going now like through my legs, up my back, around my helmet, down my, down my, my, uh, my arm. And I was ensnarled and I, there's no way I was getting that. I really couldn't even see where it was anymore. And, uh, I needed to, to get help from my spacewalking buddy who came over and was, was very impressed. But, and, uh, and then we talked about it afterwards and, uh, what he, what he said to me, he goes, you know, Mike, uh, you need to learn Hoot's Law. And this guy was Hoot Gibson, who was the, the Navy pilot, was the chief of the astronaut office. And his law was, no matter how bad things seem to appear, you have to remember, you can make it worse. And so, you know, we, we get strike one, oh, I made this mistake. But that's usually the indication, of let's, let's slow down, let's get help, let's fess up, let's not make it worse. Because once you start making things worse, now you have a, a second or a third problem to fix before you can get to the first problem, which usually isn't as bad as we think it is. So tell me about um, when Columbia met its uh, devastating final voyage. And did you have survivor's guilt after you lost uh, seven of your very close colleagues and friends? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. If, if survivor. I think maybe in some ways you might call it that, Kennedy, but I, you know, I felt, I felt terrible. What, what had happened that I, after like the, it was the worst day of my life when we found out we lost space shuttle Columbia. As you mentioned, that was my first flight was on the same space. Just the year before. Thus the year. And, and in fact, they were STS-107. That was shuttle flight 107. We were shuttle flight 109 on my first flight. So we were supposed to go after them. They they assign you in, in order of n- number, right? And, and so we were 109. Columbia came back from an overhaul in California in Palmdale at the contractor. And it came back and there was something wrong. I, like flaky paint or something weird thing was 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 wrong with it that was going to it didn't have to go back to the shop in California it was going to stay at the Kennedy Space Center but it was going to need some repairs and uh that was going to delay both flights and they were getting worried about our flight going to Hubble getting delayed more than it already was delayed at that point so they flipped us so we got their spot and and they got ours and uh so I, that hit me like about the third day after the action it's like oh my goodness it was like you know like that was supposed to be that they, we got their slot. They got our slot and they didn't make it back. Um, what, what it did, it was, it was, it was a, a terrible thing, of course. And the first thing was to take care of the families. And then the next thing that I realized that we all started talking about really in the astronaut office was, you know, that we, we we're not going to let this happen again. And we're not going to let this stop the program. And uh, I don't know if it was survivors guild. What I, what I think about it, Kenny, and I'm still close with those families. Um, I was, we celebrated the 20th anniversary of that accident. So I don't know, celebrated is the right word. We, you know, we memorialized it 20, uh, 20 years later, which was, it happened in 03. So in 2023, this year, in, in January, 
we we honored them with with the 20th anniversary of that uh, of of that accident and the the commander's wife very good friend of mine um uh evelyn husband rick rick husband was a great friend of mine and um she invited me and another astronaut steve Lindsay, who had come in for the ceremony to dinner the night before and and i what i what i felt like is that it's rick rick and those guys the whole crew the the seven of them laurel clark and was one of my classmates i had three classmates that i lost and four very good friends and rick was was i was very close with him and the way i looked at it you know and and seeing his seeing his wife and i've stayed in touch with his wife and his family you know he didn't get a chance to live the rest of his life it got cut short we for every reason were able to you know we 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 didn't get killed <laughs> we were still there we wanted to do the best we could to continue the program and i look at it as kind of owing it to my friends to do the best I can with the days we had, we were given that were taken from them. And so I try to look at it that way, that it was such a horrific thing that happened to them, but we should try to move forward and, and, and in their memory, in their honor, try to continue the program and live the best, best lives that we can. And the program did continue until yep. 2011, correct? Yep. Yep. The last shuttle, so we, we were down for a while. So 03 was the accident in, in February 1st of 03. We tried flying again in July of 05. It didn't go well. There still was a lot of debris coming off the tank, which is what was the cause of the accident. Shut down for another year. And so it really wasn't until 06, uh, which ended up being, you know, yeah, three and a half years later where we started flying regularly again. And that gave us a chance to to finish out the space station build and and service the hubble space telescope which was my flight uh at, at that point my second flight um and that, that closed out the space shuttle program we, we flew until 2011. do you have a soft spot for the hubble or are you in awe of the web i like them both I, i'm in awe of the web and i have a soft spot for hubble they're really just they still work together they both are working fine um uh, hubble still is after all these years it's pretty much the same group of people that does the the at the astronomers space telescope science institute down in in baltimore um goddard space flight center people manage both of those telescopes so i know the team um they're very appreciative of what hubble has done and continues to do and they also are really excited about what they're doing with web and so am i so it's not an and you know it's not one team versus the other it really is actually just two telescopes being used pretty much you know, not by the same but it's used by a lot of different astronomers but but everyone's on the same team here so so they're they're thrilled to have both how are you how do you view ai in terms of either the space program mm -hmm. or uh, you know because we've heard about ai you know sort of cultivating the potential to cultivate oxygen on mars and mm -hmm. but also astronomy and you know mm -hmm. some of these massive telescopes you know light and and radio and otherwise how will ai influence the the systems that you know well that maybe existed before the explosion of ai i uh, i think it's i hope it's going to be helpful and i think it should be helpful it's already been helpful if we look at some of the automatic systems for example that have been introduced compared to what we had on the space shuttle where everything was a, a pretty much a person figuring it out with very little computer help. And, and uh, there are some things that humans do well and other things that computers and AI can do even better, particularly when it comes to sorting out emergencies in certain cases. We found that the computer would be better than 
than people. We're a lot safer. It's all automated on the on some of these new spaceships, like the SpaceX Dragon, for example. So they're able to do a lot more. They're able to return the vehicles back to the uh, to the platform so they can be used again. So everything's reusable, and it's sort of highly automated. Uh, a lot of decision making, AI, I guess you could call that, uh, being done on these spaceships now, which is keep reducing the training that is needed because we had to be able to handle everything, and now the computer can handle that, and also a lot safer. So I think that what I've seen is that it's been used uh, really well, and there's no reason not to embrace it. Um, there's always going to be a role for humans, I think, in every part of our lives. I don't think we should worry about being replaced. I think there's we, we're still we're still who we are. We're still people. People are still going to experience things and be able to make certain decisions that I don't think a computer will ever be able to compare with. But I think we have to embrace it and let them help us help us as much as we can. So I think a lot of the successes we're seeing in the last couple of years is because of the the increased automation, um, computers, AI. I think it's been a good thing in the space program. I think it hopefully will continue to be that as well. Do you think the private space race is good for humanity? I do. I think the more people that go, the better. And it's not just, you know, Captain Kirk and celebrities, you know, paying a lot of money to go. Um, it's it's also just opened up more opportunities for some countries that have been wanting to send their people to space, for some individuals who aren't necessarily interested or maybe not qualified to be NASA astronauts. I mean, I wanted the job. I wanted to be a full-time astronaut. And only part of my time at NASA, my 18 years, just, a, you know, 26 days I spent in space. And, and but it was 18 years at NASA. But I wanted that job. I wanted to be on the ground helping and figuring out uh, it, it, uh, solutions to problems. So Some people uh, are not interested in doing that full-time, but they do want to go to space for not just being a tourist, but for research reasons. Those opportunities are now becoming available. My students at Columbia have flown two experiments in space. They, you know, they, they didn't get to go, but they got to fly two of their experiments, one on a Blue Origin vehicle and one on a SpaceX vehicle to the space station that was up there for about a month or so and then returned. So that would never, you know, students can never fly a, an, an experiment to the International Space Station on their own. I mean, they got they got some help from NASA to, to integrate it, but it was their experiment, and that would be unheard of even just a few years ago. So I, I think it's opened up a lot of opportunities. Um, I think it's it's also helped the economy, which is kind of what I think the government should try to do whenever they can. And NASA wanted to commercialize the space shuttle. They were actually, before the first accident, before Challenger, they were converting manuals from the NASA version to a commercial airline version to be to turn that eventually make the shuttles a commercial vehicle that pilots could fly people around the world. And that didn't work. The first accident kind of stopped that idea. So I think this is something that NASA, to its credit, has been trying to do. And now we're starting to see some of the, the benefits of it. Well, we can still look up into the heavens. And, and the thing that binds us as human beings is there is so much that we don't know, but we yeah. long to know. And, and there's something so comforting about that when we look up into space and we see something so much greater than ourselves. And I'm very grateful for people like you who make it make sense. So, Mike Massimino, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been an amazing conversation, and I encourage anyone who loves space, who's thought about being an astronaut, to get this book, Moonshot, A NASA Astronaut's Guide to Achieving the Impossible. Thank you for being a part of the podcast, Mike. Thanks, Kennedy. I really appreciate you having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Absolutely. This has been Kennedy Saves the World. I'm Kennedy. 
for more podcasts from my friends at Fox, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Oh, go ahead and leave me a review while you're there. I'd love to hear what you have to say. You've been listening to Kennedy Saves the World on the Fox News Podcast Network. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.